Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramithius and today we're looking at one of the most ambitious defensive structures on Tamriel and the rulers that produced it. Today we're asking how did the tribunal become gods and what is the ghost fence? Before we get to that though, I just want to say thank you to some new patrons who have signed up on the Written Uncertainty Patreon at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. Thank you ever so much, LC, for signing up. I really appreciate that you're wanting to support this podcast. Thank you so much. And I'm also grateful for a returning patron in Dame Judy Stench. It's good to have you back. Thank you. And also, if you wanted to sign up and support the show, that is patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty certainty or if you just wanted to give a one-off donation then there is Kofi as well which is ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius and before we get started I also wanted to say thank you for these questions these are some questions that I've had from some listeners that I'm kind of digging into and kind of amalgamating into one I had some questions about how the tribunal became gods how that process worked um, and some bits and pieces about what Ghostgate is and how the ghost fence works. So thank you ever so much to Danielle Peterson for that and someone whose name is lost in my notes, unfortunately. I'm sorry. I I want to say proto someone, but I can't honestly remember. Uh, But thank you ever so much for the questions. If you have any more questions that you'd like me to look into yourself, please do email me at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. It's... I'm starting to kind of run out of my own questions at this point. I've asked so many over the years that I'm now starting to run out of ideas. So if there's anything that you want me to look at on this podcast and ask questions about, then please do drop me a line on that email. And with that, I think we should probably get to it with the usual disclaimer to start that this is my own understanding of how the tribunal and the ghost fence work and may not be the whole truth of the matter. And you may have other opinions. If you do, I would absolutely love to hear those. Please do get in touch either by the email that I've just said or on Twitter at Aramithius. I'd absolutely love to hear from you and just be aware that this is something that I could in theory be getting wrong as well. So please do look into it in your own way and come to your own conclusions as well as what I'm going to be spouting at you. And if you want to check out where I'm getting all of the conclusions that I'm drawing and look up all the text I'm using, that sort of stuff, then you can check out the text that accompanies this episode of the podcast at writteninuncertainty.com forward slash podcast forward slash ghostgate. And there will be a text version of this podcast and it will also have links to all of the sources that I'm quoting. It's probably simplest to start off with both of these with how the tribunal became gods because the tribunal becoming gods led directly to the ghost fence. But if you believe the story of the tribunal temple, they became gods after the Battle of Red Mountain, although quite how isn't really explained in any great detail. Uh, To quote the book Fellowship of the Temple, they say this, that the tribunal, quote, achieved divine substance through superhuman discipline and virtue and supernatural wisdom and insight. And that's about all we get. 
like the official account of Talos becoming a god, which I covered some time ago in a cast on mantling, we get a lot more ink spilled about the unofficial accounts and the heresies and the rumours than we do for any of the orthodox. This is how it happened. It's just sort of accepted as something that happened and there's not an awful lot of thought gone into how. The faithful here just seem to think it happens as a reward for effort or being a good person or something like that. We do get a little bit more colour in the book Progress of Truth, but not much. They say this, quote, Temple doctrine claims that the tribunal's apotheosis was miraculously achieved through questing, virtue, knowledge, testing, and battling with evil. Temple doctrine claims their divine powers and immortality are ultimately conferred as a communal judgment by the Dunma ancestors, including, among others, the good Daedra, the prophet Veloth, and Saint Nerevar. And for those of you that are wondering about Nerevar being an ancestor noted here, the book Saint Nerevar claims that he blessed the tribunal's rule and divinity before he died of his wounds at the Battle of Red Mountain. And as part of that whole idea of them being part of the Dunmer ancestors and so on, the tribunal take on the religious role of of those who came before them. The Kaima were ancestor worshippers and the tribunal became the embodiment of those ancestors. Protectors of the Dunma were the fickle Daedra who were kind of the ancestors by virtue of being good examples to follow and people who you want to follow and want to emulate and kind of take on a sort of adoptive parenthood that sort of thing that the Dun the daedra weren't living up to those standards they were being fickle and changeable and so on according to these sorts of accounts and so they weren't worthy of the adoration and worship of the dunma people and the tribunal were because they were such nice people that they'd done all this stuff and were had been gifted divinity to do it because they were such nice people. I mean, there is some things in here, particularly with regards to the questing, virtue, knowledge and testing and that sort of thing, that knowledge or divinity is earned through suffering. You see this to an extent in real world mythologies where you have things like Odin hanging himself on a tree and wounding himself, tearing out an eye and so on to gain knowledge of the runes. That's probably the most archetypal example. And some accounts of Christianity also claim that this is what Christ's crucifixion was about and that it was suffering in order to gain that divinity and going through a process in order to become a god and that sort of thing but this is a bit more neutral than some of the more heretical accounts that suggest that this is somehow cooked up but this is achieved being achieved through questing virtue and knowledge says that it's something about the effort that they made themselves and their own internal qualities as people that made them into the gods of the Dunma. But of course, there's a bit more to it than that, frankly. The account preserved by the Ashlanders and various corners of the temple hierarchy note that there is another possibility. This is the event that Vivek eventually owns up to during the events of the Elder Scrolls III, which is summed up nicely in the introduction to Progress of Truth. Quote, 
Dissident priests ask whether Dagoth Ur's powers and the tribunal powers might ultimately derive from the same source, Red Mountain. Sources in the Apographer suggest that the tribunal relied on profanely enchanted tools to achieve Godhead, and that these unholy devices were the ones originally constructed by the ungodly Dwemer sorcerer Kagranak to create the false construct Numidian. Uh, this is the ultimate truth of it, as far as we understand, that the tribunal used Kagranak's tools to tap into the power within Lorcan's heart hidden in Red Mountain. And so this is the idea that the power was stolen from Lorcan or from the heart, rather than being something that is earned by the tribunal's own efforts. This is the thing behind the idea of the tribunal being false gods, because it's not something that's intrinsic to them, despite what's the official accounts say. Exactly when this apotheosis happens isn't clear. Both Vivek's own account of the Battle of Red Mountain and the Ashlander legends that are recounted in Nerevar at Red Mountain note that some level of study of the tools was required before the tribunal could fully use them. By this account, the tribunal are not gods in their own right or by their own achievements, but they're basically recycling Lorcan's divinity for their own ends. It's for this reason that they couldn't do much about Dagothur on their own without destroying the source of their own power. This is speculated by the authors of Progress of Truth, but it's pretty much confirmed in Vivek's account, which says this, quote, As the darkness grew, we fought it and crafted walls to confine it, but we never could destroy it, for the source of the darkness was the same source as the source of our own divine inspiration. This is worth putting a pin in for later. The Ghost Gate was made to confine the Blight and Dagothur, but ultimately was going to at best forestall things, because the tribunal needed the same thing that was powering Dagoth Ur to get the, the source of their own divinity. Or at least that's the theory. There have been a few other possible sources for the tribunal's power that have been floated, and I'll go through those now. The one you'll see the most talk about is Vivek having Chim. I've spoken about Chim some time ago, so I won't go into too many details here that aren't directly relevant to Vivek's godhood as such. If you want a more thorough investigation of Chim, check out that previous episode. Uh, suffice it to say that Chim has variously been claimed to be world-shaking superpowers or a form of enlightenment or knowledge about the ultimate nature of the Arabis or realising that you're in a video game and hacking the code. I'm sure I've missed some possible interpretations there but I think they're the main ones. We learn mostly about Chim in the 36 Lessons of Vivek, where Vivek apparently either learns it or at least learns of it from Molag Baal in Sermon 12, where Baal says the word. It's mostly assumed that this is where Vivek attains Chim or something like it, as Vivek gains knowledge by his submission to Baal in the sequence of events that is the Pomegranate Banquet in Sermons 12 to 14. And Sermon 13 is basically a Chim instruction manual, from that, I would basically assume that if Vivek has Chim, then that's where it was gained, and it was gained independently of the heart. It's also possible that it was achieved earlier on in the lessons in Sermon 4, where Vivek drinks, quote, an old bone of the earth, and in so doing, quote, becomes a ruling king of the world. I personally think that this earlier reference is a little subtle acknowledgement that Vivek gets here divinity from the heart of Lokhan, as the heart gets referred to as the heart bone 
in the lessons. So with that and the similarities between those, I'm inclined to think that Vivek is at least acknowledging one part of where here divinity came from over and above Chim. I will also note that from what we know of Chim, mostly from Mankar Cameron's description in the commentaries on the Mysterian Xarxes, that if Chim can reshape the land, Vivek doesn't seem to have used it all that much. There's not been much in the way of land reshaping that went on in Vivek's history, at least outside of the 36 lessons, which frankly, those accounts I'm very sceptical of. And it's possible that Chim is what allowed here to keep Lyrock paused but ready to hurtle into Vivek City, but we don't know for sure. Vivek at least ties that a little directly to the idea of the love of the people for the tribunal, which is another potential source of power which we will get to a bit later, independent of Chim. I'd also like to introduce the possibility that Vivek may not have had Chim at all. We've said that there's not a whole bunch of evidence that Z used the powers that Chim granted, and I have to credit Happy for this one uh, with flagging the possibility that Vivek didn't have Chim at all, because there's this intriguing little line from Sermon 37, quote, and the red moment became a great howling unchecked, for the provisional house was in ruin, and Vivek became as glass a lamp, for the dragon's mane had broke, and the red moon bade him come. The sign of royalty is not this, a signal blue shift female told him. There is no right lesson learned alone. Now, in other places, I've seen this as an explanation for why Vivek didn't just achieve Amaranth on her own, particularly as the Amaranth is achieved by the marriage of Vivek and Jubal in Coda. It's the unification of two people and the joining together and the togetherness that's the thing. Uh, the right lesson in this particular interpretation is Amaranth itself. But the signal blue shift also mentions the sign of royalty, which isn't a term for Amaranth. It is a term for Chim. I'm aware this goes against a lot of the orthodoxy of understandings of Vivek, but I think that Vivek not having Chim is a reasonable interpretation of that line. While the 37th lesson does deal with alternative timelines, that doesn't begin until after the passage we've quoted. So if the signal blue shift is right, then Vivek doesn't have Chim, which is one possible explanation for why he doesn't use it to get rid of Dagoth Ur. However, Z did retain some powers even after the heart was freed. Vivek does say that there is some residual power from the heart that they can then use to set up the new temple and prepare the Dunma for what comes next. Um, and you can also argue that the residual bits of Vivek's power, particularly things like the ghost fence and so on, and other big changes that you would expect if the tribunal suddenly weren't gods properly, are just the limitations of the game engine for the Elder Scrolls 3. But they're total capitulation is also a possibility that Vivek didn't have Chim in the first place. So you can argue that some of those big changes that were slow to happen were due to the game limitations of the Elder Scrolls 3, that they didn't want to suddenly completely change the landscape and all that sort of stuff. But there is another possibility, quite apart from Vivek's comments that Z still has some of the residual power from the heart itself. That possibility is that the faith of the people has played some supernatural role in sustaining the tribunal's powers. Vivek has this piece of dialogue in the Elder Scrolls 3, quote, 
Why did I suppress the Apographer? Because it was such an unfortunate mixture of truth, falsehood and speculation that I couldn't afford to manage the confused reaction of our faithful. Any doubt whatsoever weakened their faith, and we needed their faith to give us the power to maintain the ghost fence. In retrospect, perhaps we lost the faith of those we most needed while preserving the faith of the meek and indifferent. Perhaps a mistake was made, who can say? And after freeing the heart of Lokan, Z says this to the Nereverine, quote, We have lost our divine powers, but not altogether. Some token of the people's faith remains, and we shall dedicate it to rebuilding the temple. These both indicate that the belief that the people contribute somehow towards the tribunal's power. This sort of thing is also hinted at in the Daggerfall era book, An Overview of Gods and Worship. Uh, that suggests this as a theory of how gods and worship interact. Quote, it's been theorised that gods do in fact gain strength from such things as worship through praise, sacrifice and deed. It may even be theorised that the number of worshippers a given deity has may reflect on his overall position among the other gods. This is my own conjecture, garnered from the apparent ability of the larger temples to attain blessings and assistance from their gods with greater ease than smaller religious institutions. Now, Vivek's words do seem to follow this paradigm to some degree, but we don't have much indication that this sort of thing actually influences gods in Ethereus. Even the text itself says this is a theory. Uh, exactly as much as you'll catch a lot of Elder Scrolls fans saying that belief and faith and so on will directly power gods, but this isn't American gods, this isn't Discworld, so I don't want to just leap to that because it's a an assumption from certain types of fantasy fiction that perhaps match up to this that we see in one text. So I'm, I'm very, very hesitant to deal with that. And also exactly how that's meant to work, I'm not even sure, because belief is never really quantified in the Elder Scrolls. In the case of the Aedra, it could be close to the real world notion of religious belief, that it can be be, to quote the author of the letters to the Hebrews, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see because the Aedra aren't as active on Mundus as they could be. The Daedra are a bit too in your face for that to be entirely right because Daedra worship happens and the Daedra are there, they're very, very visible and that sort of thing. And also their lack of connection to Mundus means that they're less likely to be directly affected by the goings on on Mundus, including the people on Mundus worshipping them. I also think that the effect of prayer and worship could be close to something like an alteration spell in a way, though. I'll just explain it after a quick note from Reality and Other Falsehoods, which will set the stage here. Quote, Our reality is a perception of greater forces impressed upon us for their amusement. Some say that these forces are the gods, others that they are something beyond the gods. For the wizard, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the appeal couched in a manner that cannot be denied. It must be insistent without being insulting. To cast alteration spells is to convince a greater power that it will be easier to change reality as requested than to leave it alone. Now, if alteration spells are convincing those greater forces that the world should be a particular way, potentially prayers could be a similar thing. The forces of the universe which the book vaguely implies could be the earth bones. I've seen that sort of speculation, but there's nothing really in the text to support that. It's just a reasonable extrapolation. I mean, that those forces just, just hear somehow that the tribunal is great for so long from so many people that they just make it so. Uh, 
And this is possibly how the Prolex Tower works, just thinking about it a little, uh, particularly if you talk about think about the definition of Prolex. I mean, it means tedious, going on for a long time and all that stuff. But that's something for another cast, frankly. I'm, I need to dig into the walking ways and this is not the cast to do it. So remember that for the future. But and convincing the greater forces to do something is one thing, but I also wanted to make a quick note of how the tribunal managed to convince the Dunma to worship them in the more mundane sense. I've covered this in a previous episode, what they actually did in the religious practices, but I want to go over the specifics of what the tribunal did a bit more here. So I'll skim some aspects and dig into others a bit more. So we know that the Kaimas pre-tribunal worship consisted of what's called fundamentalist ancestor worship, according to Progressive Truth and a few other sources. This essentially means worship and reverence directed towards those of their clan who achieved great things. They also worshipped the good Daedra, which were the main objects of worship by the House Mer at the time the tribunal came to power. These were treated as the ancestors of the Kaima, uh, in some places at least, the Anticipations directly calls Boethia an ancestor, and the Redguard Forum Madness post retranslates Daedra as our stronger, better ancestors. So the notion of ancestor is somewhat fluid, as I said earlier, being it's probably closer to someone who takes ideologically after a person rather than a literal blood relation. Uh, we see this with Malakath and the Orcs, where his followers um, changed with him uh, as he changed. It's not his children, it's his followers. So there's that association of ancestor, uh, ancestorhood, if I can put it that way, with the people who agree with you ideologically and that sort of thing. This all ties back to something that Michael Kirkbride has said about wars then being, wars then in, then being the Dawn era, be, wars then being ideologies given skin. And so you've got a physical manifestation of an ideological commitment, so to speak. And this is possibly something similar that the claiming of the good Daedra as ancestors was an ideological alignment with physical consequences, that ideology has metaphysical ramifications that impact physical reality. And so with that sort of a precedent set up, that makes it very easy for the tribunal to step into the role of divine overseers, as it were, where might makes right, essentially. If you think back to the idea of our stronger, better ancestors, if the Daedra are only ancestors because they were stronger, because they were better, then the tribunal just need to overcome the Daedra in order to become ancestors themselves. The book The Anticipations says this, quote, by the apotheosis, the tribunal, blessed be their holy names, became the protectors and high ancestor spirits of the Dunma and bade the Daedra to give proper veneration and obedience. It's their role as protectors that was the foundation of the tribunal's position, which the Daedra forfeited because they lacked the interest to protect the Kaima or the Dunma people. And the text begins with this as a core principle, with one of the beginning lines being this, quote, in old times, the Kaima worshipped the Daedra as gods, but they did not deserve this veneration, for the Daedra harmed their worshippers as often as helped them. 
Now, there's a very fine line to be drawn here, which gives the tribunal two claims to be the gods kings of Morrowind. Note that the Anticipations doesn't actually say how the tribunal achieved godhood. It kind of brushes over it with the term apotheosis, which is just the process of mortals becoming gods in general. I mean, apotheosis is used to describe what happened to deified Roman emperors in this world, for example. But Progress of Truth gives a relatively narrow account of what godhood is and why the tribunal didn't qualify, which is this, quote, Temple doctrine claims their apotheosis was miraculously achieved through questing virtue and knowledge, testing and battling with evil, which we've heard before. And if you think back to what was said in Progress of Truth, they give a relatively narrow account of what godhood is and and so on. It's the idea that you attain it through questing virtue, knowledge, testing and battling with evil. And then the tribunal don't manage to achieve that because they tapped into the heart of Lokana at Red Mountain. And so they say this, quote, Sources in the Apographer suggest that the tribunal relied on profanely enchanted tools to achieve Godhead, and that those unholy devices were the ones originally created by the ungodly Dwemer sorcerer Kagranak to create the false construct Numidium. And then it goes on to say this, quote, While challenging the divinity of the tribunal, the dissidents do not challenge the sainthood or heroism of the tribunal. In fact, the dissident priests advocate restoring many of the elements of fundamentalist ancestor worship as practiced by the Ashlanders and by St. Veloth. So there's a mixture of things going on here. I appreciate I've just fired off a whole bunch of concepts at you and not really explained a lot. So I'm, I'm sorry, but bear with me. Uh, there's an idea of godhood here, which involves a change in substance in some way, while sainthood is more to do with deeds and an anticipation that the tribunal would actually be saints. It seems that by the time of the dissident priests, the notion of godhood within the tribunal temple has shifted. It's not just the doing of good deeds that guarantees veneration or that being able to suitably protect the Dunma people, which is what the tribunal were originally claiming that makes godhood, but that over time godhood becomes a difference in substance between gods and mortals. This shifts from ideological alignment to a physical change, and the two cannot really be related. I'm not totally sure what's driving this, but it may be a form of niche protection within the structure of the society of Morrowind, if I can put it that way. The temple has many saints that it reveres, but they're not gods. Nerevar was the first of these, if the story is to be believed, and as these saints expanded and as the tribunal wanted to emphasize the forms of conduct they wanted others to follow, the gaps between saints and gods needed to become bigger because lots of people striving to become gods, questing, doing all this stuff and potentially tapping into very dangerous sources of magic, it does not make a stable society. And I think it's that need for a stable society and a different kind of society um, that, than what came before that puts emphasis on the tribunal as being a different kind of being compared to other figures within the temple pantheon. It makes it less attainable and so you, people don't push to become something greater than they are. I mean... And that also isn't to say that they stopped being protectors as well. They still, they were still protectors, but that's not good enough in and of itself to make them gods and to make them worthy of being worshipped. 
and they did carry on being protectors and nowhere is that any more obvious than it is with the great ghost fence which we should probably get to the great ghost fence was erected as a means to contain dagoth Ur and the blight that he was creating it's a development of older practices of ancestor veneration which the book ancestors and the dunmer puts like this quote it is a family's most solemn duty to make sure that their ancestors' remains are interred properly in a city of the dead such as Necrom. Here the spirits draw comfort from one another against the chill of the mortal world. However, as a sign of great honour and sacrifice, an ancestor may grant that part of his remains be retained to serve as a part of a ghost fence protecting the clan's shrine and family precincts. Such an arrangement is often part of the family member's will, that a knuckle bone shall be saved out of the remains and co- incorporated with solemn magic magic and ceremony into a clan ghost fence. In more exceptional cases, an entire skeleton or even a preserved corpse may be bound within a ghost fence. While the book in general is describing Dunma practices around the time of the armistice, a more modern author goes on to say this at the end of the book, quote, The ghost fence has forced many changes in the practice of ancestor worship. With the vast majority of ancestors' remains going to strengthen the great ghost fence around the mountain of Dagoth-Ur, there are very few clan ghost fences in Morrowind. The temple discourages such practices among the houses as selfish. Now this shift happens because of the need to defend against Dagoth-Ur, which, as we discussed earlier, the tribunal cannot wholly do themselves. Dagoth-Ur presented both a theological and a military threat to Morrowind, which only emerged after the advent of the tribunal. I mean, Dagoth-Ur was also a convenient devil figure upon which the tribunal could cast all of the woes of the people, Um, but he was also an existential menace that needed containment. So to an extent, they tribunal were kind of right i suppose to say that everything matters uh, everything must be done to contain dagoth Ur. exactly when the ghost fence was actually built isn't clear at least to me there's some conflicting sources out there the book a short history of morrowind implies that it was there in the year 414 of the third era ancestors and the dunma mentions it and the book was written shortly after the armistice was signed in the late second era However, we also have some Ashlander dialogue that says it was constructed 10 years before the events of the Elder Scrolls 3, which would be in 417 of the Third Era. I mean, the preponderance of evidence says that it's quite a bit older than that, but the inconsistency still nags at me a bit. If you want to have a more in-depth look at Ghost Fence dating, check out a Reddit thread posted by Bruno the One on our Tesla. It's a much more thorough look at it and going through all the sources and that sort of thing. Possibly because Dagoth Ur and the Tribunal drew from the same source, the Tribunal could not entirely contain the blight that grew within Red Mountain, and so another source of power for the Great Ghost Fence was necessary. Both the plan to defeat Dagoth Ur and Vivek's dialogue suggest that this was the faith of the people. So the plan to defeat Dagoth Ur says this, quote, However, we failed because we were required to stage an assault and simultaneously maintain the ghost fence to prevent the threatened large-scale breakout of Dagoth Ur's blighted hosts. With the Nerevarine leading the assault and the tribunal free to devote their full energies to maintaining the ghost fence, this plan has a greater chance of success. 
And you remember that Vivek says that they say they needed the faith of the people to maintain the ghost fence in the dialogue we talked about earlier. Now, while these sources are both likely to be quite pro-temple and therefore will give the people a more important role than they necessarily had in order to keep them involved in giving devotion to the tribunal, this, this does imply that Faith is doing interesting things in interacting with the tribunal in more direct ways than we see in any other deified figure in the Elder Scrolls. We don't have any other similar direct evidence that Lokan or Talos or Akatosh really has a boost from their worshippers in quite the same way, apart from the theory that we talked about earlier with an overview of gods and worship, that sort of thing. And it's also just as well that the faith of the people wasn't needed much after the advent of the Nereverine. Uh, with Dagoth uh, gone, both the Tribunal and the Great Ghost Fence go into the history books. While the fence itself carries on in the game once you've finished it. I'm not sure what happens in the lore in this regard. I don't imagine that they would have taken the time to dismantle it, what with everything else that was going on in the Red uh, red Year and so on afterwards. Uh, it may have been destroyed in the Red Year with the volcano being right next to it or anything, but we don't hear about that. Possibly the fence still stands somehow in some semi-ruined state as the relic of a bygone era and a threat overcome. I mean, that would fit with how Dunmer culture sees history and sees life as a constant set of struggles. That would make sense to me. But beyond that, I have no idea whether it's still there or not. It would be interesting to see, but I very much doubt that we will go back to Vardenfell at any point in the near future in the series after the events of The Elder Scrolls 3. But yes, and that is it for this episode on The Tribunal and The Ghost Fence. I do hope you've enjoyed this somewhat more meandering than usual episode and if you have anything that you want me to have a look at, please do drop me an email at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. I'm not scrabbling around for topics quite yet, but do please do keep them coming in. And next episode, we will be looking at the closest thing to monotheism that we've seen in The Elder Scrolls. Next episode, we will be asking, who are the Skull and what do they believe? And until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written Uncertainty, a podcast written and hosted by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Do you love the Witcher series and are interested in learning more about the world and the history and the monsters and the characters of the Witcher? Well, this is Robots from shows like the Fallout Lorecast and the Elder Scrolls Lorecast and the Mass Effect Lorecast. And me and my buddy Toasty are now doing the Witcher Lorecast. It's available on whatever podcatcher you're listening to this on right now. And we also recorded live on Monday nights on twitch.tv slash robots radio at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. So you're welcome to join us there. Again, it's the Witcher Lorecast available everywhere. Go check it out right now. Hey, I'm Tom. And I'm Stuart. And we're from the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. We talk about all things connected to D&D lore. 
And we're on the Robots Radio Network. So if you're into Dungeons and Dragons or you're into lore, then come check us out. You can find us on any podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Roll more dice. That's the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast.